G'day and welcome to Is It Relevant Today? Right here on Faith FM. I'm Marius Jigau and on this show we're examining biblical concepts and ideas and asking ourselves the important question, Is It Relevant Today? Or is it as outdated and ridiculous as bell-bottom pants? Our show today is titled, Decisions, Excuses, Excuses. Now, this is the fourth presentation in a series that we've had on godly decision-making. So, if you've missed the previous ones, check out our YouTube channel called, Is It Relevant Today? But as a little bit of revision, on our previous presentation, we looked at the micro-details of our decision-making process. And we had a look at the story of Rebecca, Jacob, and Isaac. And we found out that the motto behind Rebecca and Jacob's life was that the end justifies the means. That the micro details of their decision-making process wasn't all that important to them, so long as it led to the desired outcome. And we found out that when we live our life according to the principle that the end justifies the means, what we're essentially doing is we are not trusting that God can fulfill His part of the bargain, that God can bring about His desired outcome in our lives when we surrender to Him. God tells us to be still and know that He is God. God tells us to trust Him and live our life in accordance to the principles that He has given us, even in the micro details of our life, and to leave the outcome up to Him. We discovered that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, we're told, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. What we find out from this verse is that the micro details of our decision-making process is what ultimately determines the outcome, is what ultimately determines the end. We discovered that the end does not justify the means, because there is only one end in this world, and that end will be the ultimate destruction of the wicked. For the rest of us, the means is all that we have. We discovered that from the beginning of time, it has been Satan's goal to deceive us into thinking that the end justifies the means, that God can't be trusted to bring about good in our lives. We discovered that when the end justifies the means, the end is always destruction. Today, we're going to have a look at the excuses that many people give for the means that they use in their decision-making process. In fact, one of the very first thing our parents, Adam and Eve, did was to make excuses for their sin. Uh, it wasn't my fault. It was her fault. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it wasn't my fault. It was the serpent's fault. It becomes second nature to us to make excuses for our behavior. In fact, I took a look at some excuses that children gave for not handing in their homework. One child said that aliens came and abducted the ink from his page and therefore he was unable to hand in his homework because it didn't have any ink on it. Another child said that he had done his homework but his dad had confused it for a letter that he had written to his brother and he mailed it to Thailand. Therefore he doesn't have his homework to hand in. Another student said he was sick and sneezing when he did his work and didn't want the teacher to get sick, so they're not going to hand in their homework. In fact, I think this excuse may actually fly in the times we're living in at the moment. I also had a look at some excuses that people gave officers for speeding. 
One was that the gentleman had bought new boots, and these boots were heavier than the boots that he had before, and it was pressing on the accelerator more. A lawyer told the police officer that he was travelling to the courthouse and he was late for a case. But the police officer pointed out to him that the courthouse is actually in the opposite direction from the one he was travelling. Another interesting case was this young lady was speeding and she was pulled over by an officer. As soon as he saw her, he recognised that she is the waitress that often serves him at the cafe he goes to. So, as she handed him her licence, the licence had something clipped to it. And the officer was thinking, oh, please don't try to bribe me. I don't want to have to arrest you for bribery. So he takes the license with what's clipped to it and goes to the car. And when he had a look, he realized that clipped to the license was a get out of jail free card from Monopoly. The officer said that he laughed so hard he didn't even give her a warning. Now I realized I just recently threw out my Monopoly game. I definitely should have kept those get out of jail free cards. Another excuse, which I have to say that I've used myself, is that someone was chasing me. I had to drive fast to get away from them. Back before I gave my heart to God, I was travelling from Newcastle to Kurumbong. I won't tell you where I was coming from. And I was driving really, really fast. And there was a motorbike right behind me for about 15 minutes. And at one point, I was travelling at around 160 kilometres an hour. And the red and blue lights turn on on the motorbike. And I was thinking, oh no, I'm in big trouble. So I told the officer, I thought that a person was following me and I was afraid and I was trying to go faster and faster. Interestingly enough, I didn't get a fine for it. We live in a world where we excuse our sinful behavior and this has become second nature to us. Now stay with us after this song and we'll look at two great kings and the courses they pursued in their lives and why this is relevant to us today. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold I'd rather be His than have riches untold I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands I'd rather be led by His nail-pierced hand than to be the King of a vast domain and be This world affords Than worldwide fame 
to Is It Relevant Today? You're listening to Marius Chigia and today we're going to have a look at two stories in the Bible. The first one is the story of Saul and this is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And it reads, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came back up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then Samuel went to Saul. 
And Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said to him, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have bought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. The other story that we're going to have a look is the story of David. And this is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to have a look at the first five verses, which read, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed all the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. What we have here is the story of two kings, the first two kings of Israel, and it's surprising just how similar the lives of these two kings were. They were both chosen by God. They were both shepherds when they were chosen. They were both humble at the beginning of their life. They were both anointed by the prophet Samuel. They both became king and they both won numerous victories in the name of God. They both ruled for a period of 40 years and they both started off well but took a bit of a detour from the path of following God. But when this was presented to them, both of them asked for forgiveness. However, the outcomes in their lives were very different. You see, both of them took a big detour in their life. Now, last week I was traveling to Horsham. And on the way there, I came across a detour. In fact, there were two significant detours on the way there. You see, I had a road which I intended to travel. I intended to go straight from Ballarat to Horsham. But I was unable to go straight there. I had to take a detour. Now stay with us after this song and we'll have a look at the way that Saul and David's detours played out. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever Yeah. 
Welcome back to Is It Relevant Today, right here on Faith FM. You're listening to Marius Jigao, and today we're looking at the detours that both Saul and David took and how they played out in their lives. God has a road that He wants each of us to travel. God has a plan for each one of our lives. He wants us to follow the plan that He has for us. However, All too many times we take a detour. We go off course from the plan that God has for us. And this is exactly what both Saul and David did. Saul was instructed by God to utterly destroy all the Amalekites. Now, this is a difficult passage in the Bible. Many people look at passages like this and think God was a monster trying to destroy all the people from one nation, essentially committing genocide. But when we have a closer look, we discover that God is in fact long-suffering. God is patient. He doesn't want to destroy anyone. We see a very clear example of this in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 15, which read, Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them, 400 years, and also the nation whom they serve I will judge afterward, and they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Here, God is telling Abraham why he's not going to get the promised land right away. And one of the reasons that God gives is because of the people who were currently living there, the Amorites have not reached a point where their iniquity is complete, where their sin is so full that it's past the point of no return. God is long-suffering towards us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And here, He's having patience with the Amorites. This patience would last for 400 years. God knew that there were still some who were willing to give their heart to Him. There were still some who could be saved. But God also knew that they would reach a point where none of them could be saved anymore, where there would be no more hope. And at that point, God would instruct Israel to destroy them. This is exactly what's happening now with the Amalekites. Now you see, the reason that God gives for the destruction of the Amalekites, now this is different from the Amorites which we previously spoke about, is because they attacked Israel as they were fleeing from Egypt. However, this had happened around 400 years ago. Why didn't God destroy them right then? Why didn't He tell the Israelites, turn around and destroy the people of Amalek? 
No, that's not what God did. You see, God is long-suffering. I believe that the iniquity of the Amalekites, just like the iniquity of the Amorites, was not yet complete. There was still some who could be saved, but now they had reached a point where none of them could no longer be saved. In fact, inspired writings tell us that if the Amalekites had not been destroyed now, that they themselves would have utterly destroyed God's people and the knowledge of God from the world. So God gives the instruction to destroy them all. He had had patience with them for 400 years, but now their iniquity was complete, and they were set on a path for destruction. And God instructed the Israelites to destroy them. In fact, God told Saul to lead the Israelites and to utterly destroy them. However, he told them not to take anything. You see, this wasn't a conquest. This was divine judgment they were executing. They weren't to profit themselves from this enterprise. They were to destroy absolutely everything. However, we find out that Saul spared King Agag. You see, it was the custom of the time to take the king as a trophy, to keep him alive in a way to boast about what you had done and keep him as a trophy. And this is what Saul did. But more than this, they also kept the best of the sheep, the fatlings, the lambs and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. They only destroyed the things which they despised, the things they didn't really want. Again, inspired writings tell us that even though they said they were bringing these back to sacrifice to God, what they intended to do was to use them to redeem their own livestock and in this way to profit themselves from this conquest. When in fact, as we discovered, this wasn't the point. This was divine judgment. It wasn't for them to become wealthy and rich from this. In this way, Saul disregarded the commandment from God. And when Samuel comes to him, Saul has something very interesting to say to Samuel, which we'll explore just after this song. Fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He, Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same. And He must win the battle.
to undo us We will not fear for God has willed His truth to triumph through us The Prince of Darkness grim We tremble not for Him His rage we can endure For lo, His doom is sure One little word shall fail him That word above all earthly powers No thanks to them abided The Spirit and the gifts are ours Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. back to Is It Relevant Today? I'm Marius Jigao and today we're looking at the detours of Saul and David and we're exploring the conversation between Saul and Samuel after the battle with the Amalekites. I want you to have a look at the way that Saul speaks to Samuel. He says, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. It's interesting that Saul takes the credit for himself. He doesn't say, We have done what God has said. No, he says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. It wasn't us, it was me. And then you can almost imagine that Samuel would have been sitting there and all once of a sudden he would have heard, meh. And he was like, what was that? And Saul was like, "Um, well, you see, they bought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best sheep and the oxen. You see, what he was essentially saying is it wasn't my fault. It was actually their fault. We can see that the nature of Saul was to make excuses for his sins. He was the one that gave instructions for the war. He could have told them to destroy everything and they would have destroyed everything. But now he's putting the blame on them. He's actually taking the credit for himself, but putting the blame on on them and excusing his behavior. In fact, a few chapters earlier, we have another instance described for us when Saul disregarded God's word to wait for the prophet Samuel to offer the sacrifice. And he waited for a while, but when Samuel was delaying, he offered the sacrifice himself and in this way took on the role of a priest. And when this sin was shown to him, when he was asked, why have you done this? He says, All the people were getting weary. A very similar response to this time. You see, it wasn't my fault, it was the people's fault. Now, you may point out that Saul does, however, eventually accept his guilt. Well, sort of. 
He says in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 30, I have sinned, yet honor me now. Please, before the elders of my people, before Israel, return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. You see, here what he's saying is, okay, I'm sorry. But you can see that he has only eventually admitted that he had sinned, but not because he feels that he's actually done something wrong. Not because he feels guilty, not because he wants to truly repent. No, the reason is because he wants to look good in front of the people. And this can be clearly seen because of what he says. After he says, I have sinned, he says, yet honor me now. I want to look good in front of the people. Please, before the elders, before everyone in Israel, honor me in front of them that I may look good. You see, Saul makes excuses for his sins. He's not concerned with genuine, true repentance. I've done something wrong. I need to change my heart. No, he's concerned with what other people think of him. On the other hand, we have David. Now, David also took a significant detour from the plan that God had for his life. His army was fighting, and he should have really been at the battle with them. But he decides to stay home. Things have been going well. You know what? I'll send them out to fight. I'm just going to sit at home and relax. And as he does this, he walks on the roof of the palace building, and there he sees Bathsheba bathing. Now, the thing he should have done was, whoa, this isn't my wife, I need to look away. But that's not what he does. He continues looking, he asks people, who is this person, and brings her to his palace and sleeps with her. Now, whether this was a consensual relationship or not, there's a lot of debate about this issue. Nevertheless, what ends up happening is that Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And David, in an effort to hide what he has done, calls her husband back from the war and gets him drunk in the hope that he will go home and sleep with his wife. And then Uriah will think that the child is his. However, when her husband comes back, he refuses to go home to her. In fact, what he says to David is, in a way, a bit of a rebuke. He says, I will not go home to my wife when our people are dying in battle. What is subtly implied here is that you should be with them too. I will not go home. David tries again. He tries to get him even more drunk the next day and sends him home, but he refuses to go. And then David writes a letter that essentially is his death warrant gives it to him to deliver to Joab, where he's told, put this man in the part of the war where he will die. Essentially, David is having him executed, but just using the opposing army to carry out his sentence. Nathan then comes to David and puts before him his sin in a similar way that Samuel had done to Saul. He told him, you have done this, and this is wrong. Now stay with us after this song, and we'll explore his response. Troubles and trials often
Is It Relevant Today? Right here on Faith FM. You're listening to Marius Jigel, and today we've been looking at the detours that both King Saul and David took from the path that God had set out for them. We discovered that when the prophet told Saul about his mistake, Saul makes excuses for his sins. And now we're examining what David did. Nathan went to David in a similar way to how Samuel went to Saul and told him of his sin. But notice the way that David responds. David doesn't try to excuse his sin in the same way that Saul did. In fact, David wrote a song for us about the way he responded to this. Now we're going to have a read through the first part of this, which is found in Psalms chapter 51. He writes, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. Here, David is accepting full responsibility for his sin. He doesn't try to excuse it away. He accepts the fact that this sin is towards God and that ultimately God is the one he is sinning against. And in this way, he goes about changing his life. Here we've looked at the story of two kings. 
Both of these kings have experiences which are very similar to each other. They were both chosen by God. They were both humble shepherds anointed by Samuel. They both became kings and won numerous victories in the name of God. They both started off well and ruled for 40 years and each one of them took a detour from God's plan in their life. And when this was shown to them, they both apologized. They both asked for forgiveness. The difference is that one of them made excuses for their sin and the other did not. We're told of David that he was a man after God's own heart. What an amazingly high praise of him we have. Of Saul, we're told that he forsakes God and towards the end of his life ends up consulting mediums and ultimately committing suicide. The main difference between these two kings isn't that one of them was really, really good and the other one was really, really evil. No. The main difference between them is that one accepted responsibility for their own sins, while the other one made excuses. I wanted to ask you today, which one of these two kings do you represent? Are you like David? Do you accept the responsibility of your own sins when they're presented before you? Or are you more like Saul, making excuses for your sins? Yes, I know that I should honor my husband, but he's so frustrating. I know that I should love my wife, but you don't know the way she treats me. Yes, I know I shouldn't really be watching this kind of movies as they're unfit for Christian consumption, but ah, it's okay, it's not so bad. Yes, I know I'm fudging my tax report a little bit, but no one will know, and I'll get some extra money and even be able to give some extra money to the church. Are we living and making excuses for our sins? The reason that this is what most of the world today does is because they don't really appreciate just how horrible sin really is. We've become desensitized to sin in our lives. We hear the story of Jesus and we're like, yeah, I know. I know that Jesus died for my sins. I know that Jesus suffered on the cross. But our heart is no longer stirred up when we hear of the serious price paid for our sins. When we excuse our sins, our excuses to God ultimately look ridiculous. God sees our hearts and our true intent, and to Him they look much like the child who said the aliens abducted the ink from his page. This is what our excuses appear like to God. The reason that we excuse our sins is ultimately because a godly life is not all that important to us. I read an interesting statement the other day, which reads, If it's important, you will find a way. If it's not, you'll find an excuse. If it's important for us to live a godly life, we will find a way to do it. If it's not, we'll just end up making excuses for ourselves. I wanted to ask you today, if God has been speaking to your heart, if God has been highlighting some aspect of your heart where you're excusing your sins, I want to invite you to surrender it to God today. I want to invite you to say, Lord, I no longer want to make these excuses because you are important to me because it's important to me to live my life in accordance to your will. If this is your decision, why don't you make it today as we close in a word of prayer. 
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for your sacrifice. We acknowledge the severity of our sin and the price that was paid for it. We pray that you help us give up our excuses. Help us to acknowledge our guilt and to bring our life in accordance to your will. Lord, we desire to draw closer to you because we know that you are returning soon. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We thank you for listening today and don't forget to visit our YouTube channel called Is It Relevant Today? where we have video presentations on a number of topics including the one we've just been talking about called Decisions. Excuses. Excuses. We look forward to seeing you next week. I'm Marius Jigal. God bless and I hope you have a magnificent day. I surrender all to Him I freely give I will ever love and trust Him In His presence daily See
surrender Listening to Is It Relevant Today? If you have any questions or comments, please leave them on our Facebook page, 
is it relevant today? But for now, thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next week. I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love.